Welcome to TNS, the new school at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring nature, culture, and consciousness. Join us now for a conversation with Peter Asmus, Margaret Bruce, Darren Malvin, and host Michael Lerner, titled Building Community Resiliency Through Microgrids. Peter Asmus, Darren Malvin, and Margaret Bruce, welcome to the new school at Commonweal. It's a joy to have you all Thank here. You. Thank you. So, uh, our conversation today is about something that might sound abstruse to some people. It's about microgrids. And um, Peter, uh, just in a word, what is a microgrid? In one word? Yeah. <laughs> That's right. No verbs. Small grid. All right. That's two words. All right. Just eating Expand on that a little. What's a microgrid? Well, a microgrid is like what it sounds. It is a small grid, but in the context of North America, the United States, it's this idea that you can create an island of power, and actually the technical term is islanding. So you are connected to a grid, like I believe Commonweal is, but the idea of a microgrid is if there was a power outage, you could disconnect and keep operating. But the key distinction about newer microgrids is that you could use solar power and other renewable resources and batteries in the microgrid. So in the old days, or in a lot of people just had generators, backup generators, diesel generators, propane generators. The idea of a microgrid is you could have a more diverse system, so a more resilient system, so that you could actually have power for a longer period of time. And Margaret Bruce, you are program manager for Local Government Sustainable Energy Coalition. Um, what, uh, what is your focus in work on microgrids? Advocacy. And say a little more about the kind of advocacy you Local governments are often left behind when it comes to standing up for their own rights and needs. So we represent them before the California Public Utilities Commission. It's not just in their patch to take care of everything. They also need the resources to take care of everything related to emergency preparedness and critical functions. So, in effect, you represent the local governments in Sacramento? In this case, not only Sacramento, okay. but where the Public Utilities Commission is in their big headquarters office in San Francisco. I get it. Thank you. And Darren Melvin, you are the, uh, what, founder, director of American Solar, which installs solar systems in many places, including the Bolinas Community Center in Bolinas, the Bolinas Fire Station, and the Medical Center, and numerous other microgrids throughout Marin County. Uh, and we're actually talking with you about the possibility of uh, installing one here at Commonweal. Yeah, very excited about the opportunity to work with Commonweal finally after all these years. And, you know, microgrids, you know, expanding a little bit on what Peter was saying, this is an important opportunity to create resiliency for important public functioning facilities. And it's very accessible. The technology has evolved so much. And we're really pleased we've been doing it for a lot of years. We're really pleased that it's becoming uh, in the for coming to the forethought for a lot of these organizations. Did I hear you did one for Marin General Hospital also? We're working with them right now actually on a much larger solution for batteries, but we did a uh, large solar system for them. Wonderful, wonderful. So I'm going to say in a few minutes why 
I wanted to do this conversation with you guys. I am a total non-specialist in uh, electricity or microgrids, but I think it's extraordinarily important. But Peter, uh, I wanted to ask you um, if you would favor us with a song at the start. <laughs> yeah, imagine that. Hold on one second. Here, let me get my So to provide the context is I uh, fell into energy totally by, I shouldn't say by mistake, that's the wrong way, but by accident, let's put it that way. Um, and in the 90s, um, as a freelance consultant, I was helping uh, educate to people about clean power. If you remember in 1997, some of you might remember, we actually could choose clean energy, although it, it sort of flopped because people wondered, how do I know if I'm really getting green energy? Or is it just corporations marketing green energy? Does the power really come to my home, etc.? But as part of that um, effort, I actually wrote a song. I had a band, and the band... Um, played solar-powered concerts at the state capitol steps as early as 1988 in the successful campaign to close Rancho Seco in Sacramento, the only nuclear plant ever closed by a citizen vote. And so part of that, I had an activist band, and we played many events, including out here in West Marin. So I'm going to play a song called Clean Power Right Now, which I wrote, I can't believe it's over 20 years ago, but uh, here we go. Sending my dollars to smokestacks, killing the Navajo. No longer willing to endorse the sick status quo, renewable and clean. No nuke fossil schemes. We all want clean power right now. We all want. Clean power right now. We all want clean power right now, right now. Who would want dirty power? When there's so many green strands Solar power is so cool Answers blowing in the wind Renewable and clean No nuke or fossil schemes We all want clean
Thank you. It says something for your staying power that uh, you wrote that 20 years ago, right? That's true. And you're still wanting green power, right? That's true. Right. We all want clean power, don't we? What was that beautiful song that somebody wrote about uh, take your poison atomic power away? Whose song was that? Oh, was it Holly? It's probably Bonnie Raitt. Well, she was doing a lot of anti-nuclear That was stuff. a gorgeous song. Yeah. Does anybody remember it? Was it Holly Near? Might have been Holly Near, I was going to yeah. say. Yeah. yeah. I love that song. Yeah. Well, that starts us off on the right, uh, <laughs> the right energetic foot. Um, so um, this is a conversation. I, I want to um, actually distribute something to each of you. Uh, which is a little, uh, a little uh, piece of paper describing uh, 12 of the major challenges to uh, the world. This, this um, handout comes from a website called thefaninitiative.net, fan, F-A-N, initiative.net. And it is a website that was put together by some friends of mine including a colleague named Pete Myers, who I've worked with for over 20 years. And um, this website is concerned with the potential for civilizational collapse. And the argument that the website makes, and I will describe what these, what the, I will describe for our listening audience what the uh, handout has, is it has 12 key global challenges. And I'll just read them briefly. Climate. Um, the, we are uh, at extraordinary carbon, methane, and nitrous oxide pulses. There's been a 45% atmospheric increase in CO2 since 1950. Economy, uh, we are in a physically impossible growth model. Uh, debt is now at 325% of uh, GDP and rising. So there's a point at which people won't believe that the debts are ever repaid. Energy, 65% uh, of oil-producing countries have peaked. Soils, uh, we have about 60 crop years left due to topsoil loss, depletion, salinization, and desertification. Uh, oceans, uh, acidification, oxygen loss, changes of currents, warming, overfishing, dead zones, and a 40% decrease in plankton, which is what all the fish depend on. Toxification, 100% uh, of the biosphere is, uh, uh, is enmeshed in synthetic and toxic chemicals and heavy metals. Governance, 90% of institutions developed in past times and they're not working well now. 
uh, behavior, uh, humans uh, adopted over 99% uh, of our history in a very slowly changing environment in small societies and small tribes. And we're just not designed for this global uh, world we're living in. Water, um, groundwater overdrafting, pollution and scarcity, 40% of food produced with irrigation, biodiversity, is uh, uh, extinctions for a thousand times background levels. Population, we add 90 million people a year and we're already well in uh, carrying capacity overshoot. And health, pandemic of chronic non-communicable diseases, potential for exotic epidemics, and 90% of sperm is harmed in typical young men. Now these are just 12. These are extremely well documented extremely well documented. And the point is, in the relationship to our microgrid conversation, is that most people are focused on what? They're focused on climate change and inequality. These are two wonderful major issues of the greatest importance. But if we look at what is actually likely to affect us, it's not one or two major things. It's not only these 12. These 12 are represented, but they don't even include technologies, biotech, nanotech, robotics, synthetic chemistry, nuclear dangers, and so on. So depending on how you count, there's a dozen to 25 different vectors that are moving together toward each other. And what we're experiencing is an increase in the number and severity of future shocks of many, many different kinds. Now, some of you may know, I wonder if you do, about a book that Ted Koppel wrote called Lights Out. Do any of you know it? I know uh, it. I see two of you. Uh, yeah. Well, so Ted Koppel, a very distinguished journalist, wrote a very important book, which I think everybody should know about, called Lights Out. And what he pointed out was that the American power grid has been mined for cyber attacks with uh, existing... Uh, uh, existing mining uh, by foreign powers, including the Soviet Union, that do not wish us well. This is a known fact. You can read in the New York Times that we talk about if there's an attack on our grid that we might have a nuclear response to it. So this isn't something somebody made up. Well, the Soviet Union is a, uh, a foreign country uh, with a land base that could be attacked. But the fact of the matter is that many hackers who don't have an attackable base also are learning how to mine our grid. And I read in the New York Times about Iranian hackers that were talking about doing this. I'm certain that this is on the North Koreans' mind. In asymmetrical warfare, if you're angry enough with a major power because of the way that major power acts, and you don't have nuclear bombs, but you have hackers. And your hackers can figure out how to mine their uh, energy grid. Well, if the American energy grid comes down, Ted Koppel's point is it would take years to start it back up because the big transformers are not even manufactured in the United States anymore. They're manufactured, I think, in China and elsewhere. It would take years to bring them back up. So here is the point. There's this confluence of many, many vectors that make some forms, we're not sure when, we're not sure what, of future shocks of increasing severity. They could be financial, they could be the electrical grid, they could be a dirty nuclear bomb, they could be a million different things. But they're interactive. That's the key point. So 
one of the places, by no means the only place, but one of the most vulnerable places is the energy grid, all right? So here we are with more and more people installing solar on their rooftops, but they don't have batteries. And without batteries, if the grid goes down, those solar rooftops don't work, right? Yeah. Meanwhile, as Dan was explaining to me, uh, Tesla is now creating better and better, not only batteries, but systems to make the batteries work uh, at $10,000 a pop for a single battery, right, roughly? Yeah, and so uh, the question that I believe is a real one for national security, for local security, for community self-reliance, is how we go about creating energy self-reliance in disasters. And the beauty of uh, the language of emergency planning is you don't have to scare people with conversations about civilizational collapse. The beauty of emergencies is that many different kinds of emergencies have similar forms of preparation in the early stages. So you can talk to local fire departments, to emergency responders, to local governments, to others. You don't have to talk about civilizational collapse. You can simply talk about the fact that, you know what, uh, there are a series of reasons why good emergency planning might make us think about the energy grid. Suppose the energy goes out for a few days, for a few weeks, for whatever. You know, what, what will we need? So what brought me to this conversation was a strong focus that I've developed at Commonweal on this question of using the language of emergency and contingency planning as a gateway to exploring what is too scary for most people even to think about, let alone look at, which is the confluence of factors that we're facing that suggest potential future shocks. So I just wanted to lay that out at the start and explain why this total non-specialist is talking <laughs> to three specialists about energy microgrids. So with that start, uh, Peter, I'd just like to invite a, a brief comment from you on what you just heard from me and how your work uh, intersects with that. Well, sure, so I, I think it's, it's a very interesting angle you have about using emergency preparedness as sort of a way for communities and individuals to start thinking about these bigger project, I mean, bigger threats, I guess, which are pretty overwhelming. I do think, uh, and obviously I was instrumental in creating this event and doing another event in Stinson Beach, and I'll use that as an example because what we're starting in Stinson Beach is just do a survey of what solar systems are out there. Like, there really is no tracking, for say. Now, the utility probably knows, but most of those are not owned by the utility, and generally they can't control them. So one idea is that most people, as you mentioned, most people don't even realize they can't use their solar system when the grid goes down. I mean, when you say that to people, they go, really? That doesn't make any sense. You know, that's kind of the natural reaction. And the reason why that is, is historically utilities didn't want a lot of sort of independent actors 
in their grid, but there was a safety concern. The safety concern was if there was a power outage, some of that electricity could trickle back on the grid, and if there was someone trying to repair the line, they could get electrocuted. And so that's been sort of the historical reason. But what's happened is that the technologies are there now to safely seal off and create these microgrids. So in the past, most microgrids were diesel generation fossil because that was sort of backup power. And so that's now sort of the new trend. So I do think emergency preparedness, I think the wildfires right now is one of the biggest drivers for all of this about emergency preparedness and even microgrids, because now PG&E, because some of you may notice they were at one point liable for billions of dollars because their power lines helped create the fires, and although there was then a last minute bill in the legislature, which I think kind of relaxed some of that. But what they're saying is we'll just shut off whole portions of the grid if it's an extreme fire danger. So that's in some ways even more, I mean, in a way it's safety, but it also feels like, well, what if we had just power out in West Marin for a week? What would that do to the community? And I'm trying to use that as a reason to get community centers and emergency shelters to even look at microgrids more seriously because of that threat. And then there's always the earthquake threat, but that, you know, you can't predict it. So on the East Coast, when they have the hurricanes coming in, at least you can see the threat. People can prepare, people evacuate. And even microgrids, some of the more primitive ones that aren't automatic. See, there's, and Darren is, can say, there are microgrids out there that are kind of, let's say, old school microgrids, where there would be a gap in power, but it would be able to come back quickly. The idea of the modern microgrid is you don't even notice a blip. It's just seamlessly keeps operating when the grid goes down. You can still have your solar going. I mean, that's the, the, the more sophisticated version. So Thank I'll pause you. there. Sorry, I was going on. No, that's good. So Margaret, I heard saw you nodding your head about uh, Peter's comments about uh, forest fires and so forth being a, a driver of uh, local government concern. Oh, a crisis is a crisis is a terrible thing to waste. Yeah, right. <laughs> And, and, and from my side, so I wear a couple of different hats. I'm, mm -hmm. I'm not the specialist you might think I am. Okay. One of my hats is I serve on the board of a water district in my community in the Santa Cruz Mountains. And what Peter was saying about the utilities now looking at shutting down circuits if there is a red flag day. I don't know if the folks attending saw the sign by the volunteer fire department that said, today is a red flag day, it's extreme fire hazard day. So if it were very windy, and if the utility and the firefighters said, yes, we think this is a high enough risk, PG&E will shut down the distribution circuit from the transmission level down to your house. Mm -hmm. So that means, and they can do it with some notice or if necessary, like that. So as a homeowner, that's an inconvenience. You can't, you know, check Facebook or, you know, <laughs> ha have, have too many ice cream cones before it melts and... And at the community level, it's a big deal. Wearing my water district hat, my operations director called me and said, oh my gosh, have you seen this thing from PG&E that says they could shut down our entire valley, basically? And I said, yes, Rick, I absolutely know what that's about. And yes, they can do that. And have you guys thought about what it means to the water district? We have about 30,000 people who live in our scattered communities. We serve... 8,500 connections. We have 43 pressure zones. We have 50 tanks. We have two water treatment facilities. 
What happens when the power goes out for a few hours is we have backup diesel, we have two facilities with solar and some storage, but not enough for more than about six hours. So when you have an extended outage and PG&E is saying, we might give you some notice, it might be out for a day, but really it's probably going to be out for longer than that, even if there's no serious fire or an earthquake or something. We have to go through and visually examine every line and make sure that nothing is arcing, nothing has broken, that there's no hazard, and reconnect everything and give it the thumbs up before we can throw the big on switch back on. Back on. So if you're talking about maintaining water supply, treated clean water for almost 30,000 people for six days mm -hmm. with no electricity from the grid, you're going to be challenged. And then what happens if there's an emergency and you have to have fire flow? And there have already been instances in Contra Costa County, there was an event where PG&E experienced a red flag circumstance. They, out of precaution, shut down the circuit. Then there was a fire and the trucks rolled to the scene and hooked up to the fire hydrant and had no pressure. And the real issue there isn't pointing finger at the, the firefighters or pointing fingers at the utility because they were being precaution, you know, taking precautions. It was that there was no established communication framework. There was no way for the utility to say, so water district, you're going to need to put in some backup power right now. <laughs> Fire department, you have a pumper truck that's got an auxiliary pump. You want to bring that one. There were no communication channels established. That's actually the theme of an upcoming event that I'm hosting in Santa Rosa on October 25th to talk about those communication channels and making sure that from the utility side, from the local government and special district side, and the emergency responder side, all of those communication channels connect, just like an electrical circuit should that they come together, they're talking to the right people, that people are prepared, and that the information that the utilities need to communicate and the responsibilities of the local governments are clearly articulated in regulation. The Public Utilities Commission has an open proceeding right now on that topic, and that's what we want to influence. Again, as advocates for local government, those channels of communication have to be clear, clearly understood, and implementable. And you haven't even spoken about hospitals or people whose lives are depending on, uh, you know, right. electrical... That's a whole other uh, conversation. You know, oxygen, electrical... That's season. a whole other conversation, yeah. yes. Preemie babies, all so those there's, things. So there's, there's an important distinction, I think, between personal resiliency, right. where if you have the opportunity to put in solar and a, and a battery and have your own residence or your mm -hmm. own business... Resilient in the face of mm -hmm. energy interruptions and disruption. Mm -hmm. That's one thing. But if you are a local community and you have limited resources and you have to prioritize, mm -hmm. what do you prioritize? Yeah. Who's, and whose job is it to make those prioritizations? Mm -hmm. um, hospitals, obviously. But also probably sensible things like community centers. Not everybody is ever going to have the resources to put in right. solar and storage and have their own little domestic microgrid. Mm -hmm. So where do people go if they need to charge their devices, if they want uh, to, you know, to call their family members, to, whatever, they, they would go to a library, a community center, the grocery store, the fire department. So when you say call their families, to what degree, this is something I actually don't know, 
uh, are the cell phone towers dependent on the grid being up? That's another important question. Yeah. Some of them are. Some of them yeah. have battery backups. And some, some of them, of them, them don't. Yeah. So does that mean that, like Verizon or whatever, if if California was out, uh, would Verizon service be up on if California were? taken out for some reason? That's a good question. Yeah. I can't speak to Verizon's network, but yeah. I can speak to my experience personally yeah. in the event of storms. I live in the Santa Cruz yeah. Mountains yeah. where we would say if a, if a bug burps, we lose energy. Yeah. We, we, do, we have spottier self-coverage. It is, it, in my experience, it has never gone away, but it has been diminished to the point where only text messages go through. I know in some of the big fires, they've just all melted, so that's a whole other story. That's a whole yeah, other yeah, story. Yeah. So, Darren, um, you're the guy that actually installs these systems. Right. So You're where the rubber hits the road. That's right. Uh, so, um, how did you get into installing uh, microgrid systems? Well, energy, I've been actually working on energy solutions, and I was involved even in high school. I was involved with a company that was building geothermal power plants mm -hmm. very early on, and I've been interested in energy my whole life. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, about 12 years ago, I decided this is what I wanted to do when I grew up, so I'm still working on it. Um, I wanted to speak to some things that you were talking about, though, and, and it's totally right that you know when you have a, an individual home and the ability to have some individual resiliency, that's great. People should definitely do that. And and waiting for a disaster to happen is not when to go. Oh, I, I'm going to call my solar company. Can you get a battery in tomorrow? You know, and and unfortunately, unfortunately, really, we don't have a lot of experience in our memories, in our you know current society of such a bad disaster that we'd want to be that prepared. But it's something that we need to get in front of. This is coming, whether it's any of these um, dramatic and uh, troublesome things you brought up or uh, just the normal things that might happen. An earthquake, the, now now this new you know, red flag PG&E can turn off your power anytime they want situation. You're listening to a TNS conversation with Peter Asmus, Margaret Bruce, and Darren Malvin, hosted by Michael Lerner. But more than individuals, I think that institutional resiliency is critical. Okay, and that's kind of what you were saying, whether it's a fire department or a community center or, or a hospital, there is so much opportunity for a very small investment considering what those facilities do and cost to have there. I mean, you know, for a tenth the cost of a fire truck, they can have plenty of power to keep their communications going and their lights on and, you know, at water districts. I mean, water is probably our single most important resource. Right after that, and people don't, we take it for granted because it's so there all the time, but energy is right after it. Our whole world, every energy is woven in and out of every single thing that we do. And we don't realize that until we lose power and, oh my gosh, we have to light candles for three hours till the power comes on at two in the morning. You know, it's something that there's an opportunity now before some big reason comes. And so not only institutional resiliency, but sustainable resiliency. That's where solar comes in, you know, because solar creates energy from the photons from the sun. And if the sun stops shining, I mean, kind of all bets are off. But, but you have an opportunity with solar to charge the batteries. And it doesn't mean that you have to have everything in a building or a facility backed up. But critical things, the refrigeration, communication, some lighting, these are things that you really need to be able to rely on 
if there was a moment of, of an emergency and to be prepared with. You know, there's a nice list. Different people uh, may think of it differently. And Steve Marcotte, you're doing, you've had a career as a, a fireman and are doing work with the Bolinas Emergency Services, getting more involved in that now, which we're very grateful for. But the, the way this list goes in my head is what do we need in an emergency to survive, right? We need water, we need food, we need shelter, we need energy, um, and we need clothing. And, um, and then, then you can go on to medicine and you know, so on, but at a very basic level, you need water, food, energy, shelter, clothing. That's kind of a, so Steve, when, when you guys in, and I know you've done a lot of emergency work, uh, do you have any kind of check off like that about what needs to be taken care of in an emergency? Yeah, the, the Disaster Council and the Fire Department have plans in place to, as much as we can, be self-sufficient. Right. Um, but being in a small town, our stores, our stores in general, are mm -hmm. kind of limited. We have a good supply of water. Mm -hmm. um, and not to, again, not knocking the water district, but the uh, water facilities are somewhat antiquated, some of the piping. Mm -hmm. So uh, the dis while the water could be there, the distribution may not be there. Fortunately, we're on a gravity system, so our supply of, our reliance on energy is not as great. The, the sanitation of the water, um, getting it clean into the storage tanks, obviously rely on water, on electricity. I was curious about that. When the power goes out, can the whole, uh Mesa, for example, in Bolinas and downtown, is that all gravity-fed pretty yes. much? Yes. So it could keep going even with the power out. Yeah, the, the uh, clean water in is gravity-fed. Right. Um, the downtown and the little Mesa sanitation-wise, uh, they rely on electricity. Um, they have a generator backup, yeah. but they rely on it to take the sewage and pump it back up to the Mesa. Oh, yeah. um, so even there, we are relying on energy. So the clean water from the uh, tanks and the reservoirs is energy fed into the system. Yeah. But to keep cleaning the water, you'd need electricity. Yeah, the, the water comes into the sanitation building, which is right over here, and it yeah. has a great solar array up yeah. right on its dam. Yeah. Um, to keep that running, they have solar power and then they have a generator backup. And would the solar power suffice to provide the no, I, energy? I, you okay. could have to ask the, the experts, yeah. but I doubt that. I mean, we're talking, you know, very large pumps, right. uh, pumping water up probably 100 feet or so. Okay. So I imagine that the solar, yeah. I'm not an expert, I yeah. imagine the solar yeah. okay. system couldn't supply okay. a generator. Now, well, I just want to bring one other person into the conversation here who reminded me that we had met uh, many years ago. John Bollard is uh, with Management Resources, and he pointed out to me that he just did a demo of a new uh, electric tractor. Actually, it was Joe over here at Big Mesa Farm who... Oh, hey, Joe. Nice to have you back. Yeah. So you guys did a demo uh, of something called Selectrac, which is an e-utility tractor which uh, could be hooked to a microgrid and enable farmers to continue um, uh, making food, basically. Yes, and, and Steve Heckeroth has also invented 
thin film solar and battery technology so that power can be distributed using the tractors with these little um, packs. So you can actually have a distributed mobile power capability in a community uh, with a few tractors to move them around as well as to dig post holes and trenching and a lot of other things that tractors are not usually used for. People usually do them, but um, tractors are much more efficient to get a lot of work done if you have them available and they're quiet and they're not going to disturb the school and they're, you know. So there's a lot of uh, implications here uh, that link with the microgrid, we think. So just so I understand a little better what you just said about um, moving them around to, to are you saying that uh, are their batteries large enough to participate in storage of electricity, or are you just saying yes? You're saying that they in could... order to get the tractor to run for eight hours, yeah. uh, you need a, a removable pack. I see. So you basically swap the packs out. I get it. So it's kind of like sticking it on the back of your cell phone at a bigger scale. Mm -hmm. So uh, using that concept, you could actually have in reserve just a stack of these battery packs, and they could go. To a particular location or go to a community center um, and basically leapfrog the uh, fossil fuel infrastructure which is Steve's vision for the third world but here obviously the microgrid uh, relationship um, you know would be key uh, we envision you know just a fleet of tractors that people just sign up with on their calendar and uh, mm -hmm. there's so much work that is not being done right now by machines because they're so polluting and right. so noisy. So these are just examples, right, of, hey James, I'm so glad you're here, James Stark from Commonwealth Garden and Regenerative Design Institute. James, let me pull you into the conversation for a minute, um, because you've been uh, thinking about these things for a long time. If my memory serves me, you had a, uh, a diesel car or something that you were running on biogas for a while. Is that right or something nice like that? oil from the restaurants yeah. in, uh, in West Moran yeah. for a few years. So um, as you listen to this conversation, what comes to your mind? Uh, phoning uh, to get uh, a solar array put on our house in Whitby next week. Uh-huh. Uh -huh. <laughs> but uh, I, I moved into an unintentional community previously called a subdivision. And so what I'm curious about now, what jumped in for me, was what about a subdivision who comes together, our home association, and decides to collectively decide on what they could do. Like there's 50 homes in this group, like I'm just imagining how that could, you know, the battery storage is more centralized, we have, we create a little building, and they were, you know, so, yeah. That's a good awesome. subject, I see people lined up. Margaret, let me give you the first shot. Oh. At this <laughs> and I'm happy to pass the mic yeah. left and right. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, it's a great, it's a great example. And it's a good, an example that's analogous to a campus. And I was aware of about mm, 15 years ago, the campus of Santa Clara University, including their dormitories, created a microgrid. So it's absolutely possible. They recognized they had the space for solar. They recognized they had a need for storage. They had critical facilities for research. An, an analogy in a community might be someone who needs dialysis or someone whose medication always needs to stay refrigerated or a critical communications need. 
the analogies are exactly parallel. So if there is the space and there are is is the interest, I think there are consultants and engineers who have the technology and the expertise, and we increasingly have the regulatory framework that would allow that to happen. Peter, you had a comment. Yeah, I wanted to say, actually, um, I got into this whole microgrid mess. No, I shouldn't say that. This microgrid topic because someone from Bolinas, it was Don Smith, who I believe is still on the water board. It was before they installed all the solar, and he was sort of asking me questions, and back then they called it community solar, which back then um, was pretty rare. Now it's, it's, it's a much bigger thing. But the idea being, you know, why couldn't Bolinas just kind of create its own energy system? We'd have the solar up on the Mesa. But what we discovered, and I actually got a grant from the Marin Community Foundation, actually Ty Cashman, who's here in the room, we all kind of worked on a project trying to figure out um, you know, how could this be done? And what we found out, of course, is a lot of the regulations didn't allow that to happen, primarily because in most communities, if you would transfer power over a public right-of-way, then you have to become a utility. And so that then means you're burdened with all of these regulatory things. And it wasn't necessarily to block it, although maybe part of the reason for that was, but it was also about safety. But What's happening are those old rules are being chipped away at. Like Connecticut was the first state to pass a microgrid law of any state in the nation in 2011 because they had a power outage of nine days. And so they now say in an emergency, only in an emergency, you can transfer power over a public right-of-way. So that's just sort of like a a little knit, you know, someone chiseling away at the former utility monopoly. And part of the idea in Stinson Beach and... Ty came up with this idea of a solar safety net was also this idea uh, in Stinson Beach. We're just trying to identify where is all the solar, really more as an exercise just to get the community to realize, like, all that power we can't even use in an emergency. And then to think about, well, should neighborhoods, should someone be designated, and this would be done more informally, who had the money to install a battery, and so the neighborhood would know, well... There's an emer- there's the community center, but you know what if someone's way on this part of town has a family emergency, actual like neighborhood planning, which would actually get people to engage with each other and think about that. So that's kind of more looking down the road. But to answer your question, but I did find out in in um, Point Reyes, there's uh, Peter Barnes who has the yeah. Mesa Refuge. And he said someone moving in, and I'm forgetting his name now, is with a group called the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. That was yeah. great. Um, I forgot his name. I know who David Morris. David Morris. Morris. Yeah. And that he was going to move Harry in there. Arlo. And they said, you know, because they're not public roads. So think about it. If, if it's not like I live on, uh, on the patios in Stinson Beach, which I guess theoretically it says uh, not a county road, I think theoretically you might be able to create kind of a mic. So that's all about, it's the nitty gritty. So I think the good news is the technology moves faster than the regulation. So since we were thinking about the solar safety net 10 years ago, back then, the technology you could have argued maybe weren't there. Now the technologies are getting there, but they're still sort of residual regulatory resistance. So Ty Cashman, as I live and breathe, I didn't recognize you. We've both gotten older since the last time I saw you. We, I think last time we talked, we were discussing your Jesuit training. Is, do I have that right? Was it Jesuit? And we were having a conversation about, I think we were talking about Aristotle and Plato. And I think you, 
You were the Aristotelian and I was the Neoplatonist. Am I remembering correctly? See, I can't remember faces or names, but ideas stick with me. So, Ty, talk a little bit about your history with this uh, electric work, which you've been very much part of. Yeah, well, uh, that goes back to uh, the New Alchemy Institute in the 1970s. I just finished up my PhD in philosophy and decided uh, I didn't, I was so tired of words because they weren't helping. Hmm. And so I gave up that path and started to use my, wanted to use my hands. I got involved with a bunch of scientists from Woods Hole who wanted to create small communities that could live without fossil fuels. This is in 74. Could live without fossil fuels. We didn't know about climate change. But couldn't we do that? Have tractors that were little electric tractors. So we decided to invent electric tractors, invent greenhouses that would provide us with all the food we needed even in in a snowy winter and uh, mm. this kind of thing. So we, we, just, we became a bunch of amateur designers, even though we all had PhDs. <laughs> it was very, very interesting, and it inspired me. Uh, we built a house up in Canada uh, that provided all its own food, all its own uh, heat, and uh, with solar before there were solar panels that you could afford. So it was had, Prince Edward Island, right? Yeah, that was Prince Edward Island. So anyway, we were kind of getting this going early on. And so that's how I got no, involved. But he's being modest. He was also, Ty was also key in the uh, original Jerry Brown administration to help jumpstart the wind industry. A that's lot right. of the policies of, and I, he's featured in my wind book, Reaping the Wind, which kind of tells... Um, all the kind of oddity. I mean, the wind industry used to be so much more fun than it is now. I shouldn't say that, but it was. In the early days, you had such characters. Now it's, you know, totally commercial. And I mean, I can't believe, Ty, I don't know if you know this, they are making turbines 10 megawatts in size, single turbines now, and even 12 megawatts. You know, I can't believe the size because my, my brain isn't large enough to hold the size. <laughs> no, it's, of an it's, image it's incredible. One of these turbines. Yeah. Yeah. For which, are, which are not without their environmental consequences. Right. Right. Yeah. yeah, well, the environmental consequences are... They're there. They're there. You talk about communities in Vermont where these things are being put up on hillsides and they're not pleased. No, so we no. just, we don't want to see it as without any True. consequences. So I want to come back to Darren because, as I said before, you're where the rubber hits the road. So... Um, Let's, I want to talk about cost. Um, so, and you said, you know, somebody calls you up, put in a solar system tomorrow. In your experience with a clearly intentioned organization or individual who knows what they want, how long is the planning, implementation, and, you know, ready to work uh, process. How long does that usually take? So uh, the typical house, you know, from the, the time you decide to do it till done, turned on with it. A lot of the time is waiting for these these various uh, AHJs like PG&E and the, and the various, you know, building departments and the fire department. Everybody's got a say in this. So a lot of it's just waiting for that. The actual installation only takes a couple of days, usually in the about, about two to three month time frame. 
is about right now. Okay. And when somebody's thinking about a budget for such a project, what percent of the budget goes into hiring somebody like you to plan it and figure it out, purchase the equipment? What are the cost centers and what percent of a budget do those different well, parts I have represent? a rule of thumb that I like to yeah, share with yeah, people as yeah. far as what, is, what does solar cost. Yeah. And just super rough rule of thumb, 100 times your electric bill. Okay, and if you work out with the cost of money, it's about a seven-year payback. And it might be a little better than that, might be a little worse. There's just depends on what so you're So 100 kind of times your electrical bill. Yeah. So if so you if have a hundred dollar a month electric is, bill, is, say again? if you have a hundred dollar a month electric bill, yeah. figure all in after the tax credits and things, you're looking at about a ten thousand dollar net cost. Okay, roughly. So it's a seven year payback. You figure. yeah, six years, seven years, something like yeah. that. Which, compared to leaving money in the bank, actually, was asking oh, Vanessa Marconi, CFO, what the internal rate of return was on something with a, a seven-year payback, and you didn't have that at the to. tip of your fingers, which is unusual, but it's pretty... Uh, <laughs> but seven years, a seven-year payback is... Uh, it's a healthy rate of return, right? Well, but Michael, something important to realize yeah. is that that's the first time it pays for itself. Right. These systems we're putting in are designed to run for decades. Right. So how many times is it going to pay for itself? Yeah. And a lot of what solar is about is not just about how many years it takes to pay for itself, right. but it's about creating enough energy for you month after month, year after year for decades. So right. what you end up with is something that becomes more valuable over time because you're fixing your cost of energy in today's dollars. Mm-hmm. That's your cost now, mm-hmm. okay? But as if you don't put in solar, you're going to continue to pay an ever-increasing bill to your utility, mm-hmm. to PG&E. Consider it infinite-term financing for mm-hmm. their power plants. Mm-hmm. And, and so when you put in a solar system, it's going to pay for itself over the 25-year warranted life of the equipment. That's a quarter of a century. It's very robust equipment. It's going to pay for itself five or six times over the course of its life. When you look at from an internal rate of return, since you brought up a, mm-hmm. if, just as a return on in, investment, if you put that $10,000 in any other investment, it's not going to touch what you're going to do with solar because you're going to get, a, on average, over 25 years in the low 20% a year return on your investment year after year after year. In the first years, it's a little lower, but further out, 10 years, 15 years into owning the system, when the cost differential is so much greater, your return, just as an investment, is excellent. So when you average it out over 25 years, you get a, a mid-20, low to mid-20% IRR. And I, somebody in the audience saving had a question. Two, if you have an electric car, you're also saving 200 to $300 a month in gas. Absolutely. To remember that. Yep. Electric cars yeah, with huge. solar are if about... If you have a solar system at your house. Yep. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Um, just roughly, if you have an electric car that's charged by a house that has solar on it, from a, a cost of fuel or energy standpoint, it's like gas costing about 75 cents a gallon. Mm-hmm. Okay, so a quarter or a fifth of the cost of what actual fuel is. And you don't have a bunch of toxic chemicals you're handling and smelling and all of that. Margaret, you had a comment on yeah, Just a, 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 quick, a, a quick Thank remark you. that in, in Marin County and in many other counties in California, we now have community choice aggregation. So you're not lining PG&E's coffers. You're, you're supporting a local nonprofit organization that returns at least a part of its revenues back to the community. Mm-hmm. It's the distribution system that PG&E is using that you are paying for. Mm-hmm. So, 
That's right. And I don't know if there's an opportunity, but, you know, when we were, we were talking about some of the local facilities and that they have uh, diesel generators as a backup and talking about powering small communities with some sort of resiliency program or a microgrid. I wanted to address that a little bit, if we could step back. Please, let's go back. Okay, so one of the things is when you look at a diesel generator, it's got a tank, okay? You're going to use up that fuel in some amount of time, whether it's days or a week or weeks. Um, Think of this. Bolinas Fire, you know, six hours in the case of your water district. Uh, Bolinas Firehouse, I think, is planning for about a week or so of fuel. What happens if you need more than that? In the case of just as the case study, the Bolinas Firehouse has a great solar system on it that could easily be connected to a battery and have sustainable, continuous energy for years effectively so that's a great example and you know this is something that you know when you look at what a generator is running on whether it's propane or diesel when you run out of that fuel you're done because if it's such a dire circumstance there's you know the carly's isn't going to be driving around with their propane truck delivering propane you know if the roads are broken or anything you know there's a lot of reasons why that's as much fuel and then you're done and it's so, loud and it's stinky. It's loud and stinky, requires maintenance, has a cost because you have to run the thing regularly. It's a motor. It's going to break down. And then there's the silliest thing that I see, which is people that have backup generators in the city connected to natural gas lines. So what's the very first thing that's getting turned off if there's a disaster and it's the natural gas lines? So, you know, thinking about, again, uh, you know, a sustainable resiliency system and these microgrids, you know, when you're tying solar and batteries together, there's an opportunity. There just wasn't before. It now really exists, and this is in just the last few years. When you were talking about houses, you said three-month process to get it all done, right, roughly. So for a person with, say, a two-bedroom house in Marin County, uh, uh, what is your ballpark estimate. Well, you gave us a, you said multiply the electric bill by... Your monthly electric bill by 100. 100. Is a super rough rule rule of thumb, but that'll at least get you in the ballpark of what you need. Okay, so you said if it's $100 a month, that's $10,000 net investment. For the system. Yeah, after your tax credit, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So that is a good rule of thumb. Go ahead. That's just solar. That's just the solar. No, that's just solar. Is that including the battery? No, it can't be. It's not. It's not. Can't be including the battery because no, the no, battery is another That does 10, not include the battery. And, and again, I mean, you're you're putting me on the spot to give you a number, so no, that's no, a rule of thumb. Just, but we're talking in broad, broad terms. I'm what not it is, asking is, you for an well, estimate. And each you know. each user, each building, each roof, everything yeah. is individual. So what makes sense is look at it. Talk right. to a solar professional. You know, we're one American Solar and Marin, but you know, there's a lot of companies out there that can do this. Talk to them. Get an estimate. Have them come out. Measure the roof. Look at your electric usage and determine what do you need, and then you'll get a real answer. Yeah. And it's not that hard to do that work. Address the cost. And did you have a question? Oh, well, it's, oh, we have uh, in Fairfax. I'm, I'm in Fairfax. And yes. Uh, been involved with the town in a lot of ways over the years. So we have now, uh, we're, we're starting to look into a microgrid in our town buildings. Excellent. We already have the solar, so there's a pretty substantial solar array on the pavilion in Fairfax, mm-hmm. but it's, it would go off when the grid went down. So the, uh, the idea is to put storage in there and put the control uh, electronics in there to where you could have the pavilion, which could be a good community center, maybe a disaster yeah. um, 
Texas Gathering Center. Uh, and you've got the fire department, which currently has the diesel generators, of course. Mm -hmm. You've got town hall and maybe the women's uh, building where we gather for a lot of things. So those tied right. together could be maybe on a grid. So um, uh, we're wondering what the cost would be, given you've already got the solar, to upgrade that to a, a microgrid right. island. Well, microgrids, battery storage, it's a more complicated conversation than solar. Yep. And there are some heuristics that I could, you know, that I could share. But it really, each individual circumstance is unique. And part of what you can look at in a circumstance is rather than saying, let's back up the entire facility and everything about it, is you can pick your favorite loads. Mm -hmm. The most important things, communication, security, communic uh, lighting, refrigeration, uh, these types of things are the most critical. And if you can isolate those circuits, you can have a lot more effective backup of just those circuits for a lot less money. If you're looking to back up everything, then it's a different story. And air conditioning and all these other things that aren't critical, most likely not critical, um, then you know it's going to cost a lot more. So it's really you have to look at each individual circumstance before you can really throw out a number. I mean, I suppose if somebody really held a gun to my head, you know, you could say right now, and the, the number it's a moving target. But right now, you're looking at a thousand to twelve hundred bucks per kilowatt hour of storage. Roughly speaking, and if you have a tiny system and a complex integration, it's going to be more. If you have a giant system and an easy installation, it's going to be less. So, but you know, this is exactly the example that I'm giving. That's so important is that you know the town of Fairfax, the fire departments, the water districts. These are the cornerstones of our communities that have to be supported and have to have nominal amount of energy if something happens. So I'm. Really glad to hear your you're We're talking about this. A lot of advantages. This idea actually came out of our climate action committee, but uh, the, the advantage from that point of view mm -hmm. is to give a demonstration to people in the community. Absolutely. So people understand the grid a little bit more by seeing yeah. a little micro grid up close. And I'd like to hear. Thank you for that. That's really and helpful. I just wanted to something yeah. that Peter had mentioned earlier, and then yeah. I'll, I'll yeah. give you back the mic. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the, uh, then I wanted to say. Something. There's a lot of discussion about diesel generators. That was kind of the de facto, here's backup power, tank of diesel, everybody knows what a motor is, and mm -hmm. Chevron says that's okay. So, we have diesel generators everywhere. There are some, I say this carefully, there is a grant available through FEMA to help fund the cost of microgrid applications if it's replacing a diesel generator, and Peter can speak to this a little bit better than I can, but this is something that's coming. We're going, there is also some state funding through the self-generation incentive program that can help uh, defray some of the cost of batteries. So there are some incentives. And if you structure it right, there's even some tax credit. So there are incentives out there. It's not, they're, they're, they're thin okay. still, but Thank there you. are opportunities. That's great. So Margaret next, and oh, Peter that's, next, that's, and then Margaret. Yeah, yeah. yeah I want to do a... So yeah, no, it's actually the EPA and on the handout has the program for uh, diesel generators, but I wanted to address the cost question a little bit, and I agree that it's it's hard, like people say, well, what does a microgrid cost? And you know, the, the, the answer is usually it depends. Now, we did just recently, uh, the California Energy Commission published a report, which we did, and we looked at 26 different microgrids. Um, I think it was nine in California, 10 in other parts of North America, and then the rest were global. And so we came up, the average cost of those microgrids across 26 
And they all had to have at least 50% non-governmental funding, so they tended to be more business microgrids because it's harder for a CNI, as they call them, commercial industrial customer, to get a government grant. The government grants tend to go more for community microgrids, which makes sense. And the average cost was $3 million per megawatt. So that I'm just throwing that number out of 26. But I think the, what we heard in Fairfax, the issue is usually there's something there. It's very rare that a microgrid is a greenfield project. And usually what's there is a generator, but now increasingly it's the solar. So a lot of the incremental costs, and this is what I'm saying to the Stinson Beach Community Center, because they have a propane generator, they have solar, but it's not integrated. So if they added the battery and they integrated those three things, they would have a more sophisticated um, microgrid. Now, the other thing I'll say, there are companies out there now that just like with solar leasing programs, that will actually say there's no money down for a microgrid. They've done it in Montgomery County. It's a company, Schneider Electric, big French company. They call it microgrids as a service. So you basically are paying off the microgrid with the savings. They'll integrate energy efficiency programs. And so the vendor makes more money, the more energy efficiency, they, the more efficient they make the facilities, their profit increases. So it actually gives them an incentive to do more energy efficiency. That's not very common, but that's the other thing we're seeing is microgrids as a service. And we're also seeing a trend towards modular microgrids, which will be my report uh, next year. This whole idea of more of a microgrid in a box. You'll never usually have them, but it's more like you put them together like Lego blocks, although that's really more for like Africa and India where there is no grid, where it makes more sense, where you have a container because there is no grid, it's a difficult situation. So people will say, here's your microgrid. Oh, it's twice the size. Okay, we'll add it. Now it's not quite that simple, but those are some of the trends. You're listening to a TNS conversation with Peter Asmus, Margaret Bruce, and Darren Malvin, hosted by Michael Lerner. So, for those who don't know, and I just want to emphasize oh, Peter's extraordinary contribution, Peter Asmus of Pathfinder Communications and Navigant Research, and the study he did for the California Energy Commission was called uh, Energy Research and Development Division of the California Energy Commission Microgrid Analysis and Case Studies Report, California, North America, and Global Case Studies. And Peter, just to follow up on the modular microgrid, you see Commonweal is on a 50-year lease in the Point Reyes National Seashore. We have about 13 years to go. Everybody hopes it will be renewed. But one of the big questions for us is, what level of investment do we make that we can't move, right. you know? Right. And so one of the interesting questions when you start talking about modular microgrids is, uh, you know, what if you need to move? Right. And in terms of the various emergency scenarios that are developing, guess what? People may need to move. Right. You know, the, there are areas that will be flooded. There are areas that are constantly subjected to hurricanes, to droughts, to forest fires, whatever. So let's just take that question that you're going to do a report on. Um, suppose somebody says to you, I'd like to do a microgrid, but I'm really interested in the cost differential between making it modular so we could move it if we moved and the, the cost of making it permanent, what would you say? 
Well, that's a good question. Um, well, I would say that the leaders in modularity is the military. Yeah. No surprise, because this is what they had to do. Of course. In Iraq and Afghanistan. And yeah. there, the issue was that the highest, um, the cause of the highest casualties for the U.S. was transport of fuel. Yeah. So it was bringing the diesel fuel to the fighting uh, troops, essentially. Plus, the diesel has what they call a heat signature, so it's, and there's smoke, you know. So uh, that's where a lot of these solar uh, backpacks, they had soldiers, they literally, I mean, you could say they were not even microgrids, like even smaller systems. Mm -hmm. So I would say the mill, now those are really expensive because they're such specialized systems. And a lot of them have to do with the telecommunications. So you have to have kind of super cyber secure, you know, and all those bells and whistles. Um, I think modular, now I know in Puerto Rico, there was a lot of sort of emergency systems that were modular and were sort of, and some of them were fossil, but some of them even were winter, little tiny wind turbines that people brought in. Um, And so, you know, I think when I'm thinking about a modular microgrid, I wasn't necessarily thinking you could move it. I was thinking, but that is, you know, I think you're, in terms of an emergency response and depending where you're at, um, that is definitely going to be a trend. But the idea of modular is also um, one of the main costs in microgrids is what they call balance of system or the customized engineering. And you always will have some of that. But I think the thinking in the industry now is, but you don't have to start from scratch. So you could have categories of microgrids. You know, here's a system for a small community center of 10 kilowatts below. And so you'd have a a product. And so that's where people are starting to go and more like, well, we'll cut out some of that customized engineering. This gentleman here had a comment. Um, I'm still a little lost in terms of what microgrid is. I don't have it. But I'm wondering, I live in Bolinas, what would a microgrid in Bolinas look like? How would it just to well, um, we're hoping that, uh, and I know because Darren's company installed right here, we just passed on the way here, there's the fire station and the um, med center. So there's solar there, there's a generator. To you driving by, you wouldn't even see the micro. It wouldn't be readily available. I mean, there would be a battery somewhere. It could be outside where it could be visible. It's a box of batteries. And, yeah. It's a box of batteries and an inverter. It's, so a microgrid yeah. would be just one, like, the, the medical center and the, and the in, firehouse. In, in it its mechanical be. room, the solar yeah. would look like it looks. You wouldn't yeah. see any of this. It would just be in, like, the mechanical room next to the electrical panels. There would be a few boxes, depending on how much they need, varied sizes, that are batteries. And and an inverter that does the inversion from the batteries. So it isn't like taking the community center, which has solar. Mm -hmm. The school has solar. They have solar here? Not yet. Well, I mean, actually... But there's, you know... RCA has solar solar out for our system. Yeah, it wouldn't be taking all of those and somehow connecting all of those together. Well, you together. could theoretically do that, but I wouldn't call that a microgrid. That there's okay. The other term would be one term I you said earlier, community solar, which is more of this idea of how do you pay for it. You could have, and the original idea of community solar is you would put like a big solar array, and this is before people started adopting in a big way, on a high-profile 
let's say a community center, and people could voluntarily pay a little extra to help finance that solar. That was more sort of the idea. And you would theoretically get a portion of it, although in reality the electrons wouldn't flow to your house, but it was more of an accounting thing. Mm -hmm. The idea of a virtual power plant, which is also something I study about, is more like let's say in Bolinas there were 25 homes that all had batteries. A company with soft, the right software could say, well, we can aggregate all of those homes and create a buying pool. And if there was a market uh, and someone needed extra energy, let's say in the Central Valley, it's 102 degrees, but out here it's only 75. There someone could say, we would aggregate all of the maybe extra energy that you could pool from those resources. And if there was some way, they'd have a contract and they'd deliver that energy to the Great. grid and they would get paid. Margaret, I'd love to hear from you. We haven't heard from yeah. you for a while. Yeah, yeah, although this woman has a burning question. Just a, a little piece of what you just said. My name's Mary Ford. I live in Stinson, big yeah. fan. Um, I don't know if you're also asking in, about uh, microgrids, that it's a matter of proximity as well. You, you wouldn't have things that were very far apart mm -hmm. uh, transferring energy because you would lose a good deal of it. Yeah, so I no, I just didn't yeah. quite understand. Yeah, that, yeah. that is like true. The, the, okay, good. The, mm -hmm. the firehouse the clinic, that would be a microgrid. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and they're close, and that could yeah. make sense. Okay. True. So let, me, let, let me just slow us down for a minute because I want our listeners to be able to hear our voice is not getting too complicated for the radio and podcast. So, Margaret, please. I wanted to follow up on Peter's comment about microgrid as a service. Yeah. And I have a great example, and Good. one that just tickles me no end. <laughs> is everyone here familiar with time of use rates? So the schedule of your price of your energy use goes up depending on how high demand is during a certain period of the day. So there's a school district in the Salinas Valley, the Santa Rita School District. They had six campuses, uh, elementary, middle school, I think, and one high school. Very economically disadvantaged community. Majority minority, majority English learners, majority uh, low income. They are also located in a part of the grid that seems to be chronically unstable. And they had very unreliable power. And when the power goes out for a certain period of time, the school district is obliged to release the students and the parents have to come pick them up and school is canceled for the day. That's not only disruptive to the learners, that's also disruptive to the school district's budget. Their solution was a set of archaic diesel generators, noisy, polluting, horrible. The school board, the parents, everyone was like, these gotta go, this is just not working. So find us something that can work to keep us online for the seven or eight hours of a regular school day. So the superintendent did her research and she found that there are indeed very large diesel generators available. One for each campus would have cost something like half a million dollars per campus. That was just like, we're not going there. That's just not working. So go back, do some more research, get some more help, find what is out there to be done that's different. At the same time, in parallel with these conversations, they had put in solar over their parking lots. They had done a comprehensive energy efficiency retrofit of the schools using some grant monies. They had... Um, put in motion-sensing faucets for water efficiency and, and motion-sensing lights. So they were really, really efficient already. 
And then they had a power outage and they realized that motion sensing toilet flushing <laughs> is not a good thing in a high school when you have no power. So their thought was, we need to do something that will keep us up and running for the entirety of a school day that no matter what happens, we can flush the toilets, the lights will stay on. We can at least have a, a minimum of refrigeration capacity. Again, they were if the power was out for enough time, they would have to throw away all the food that was in their cafeteria refrigerators, and that was horribly expensive. They got someone <clears throat> who did all of the engineering, added a little bit of solar, added the appropriate amount of battery storage. I don't know if it was flow battery or lithium ion, I don't know what type, but appropriate battery storage. Educational interfaces, so screens that would display how much energy is in storage, how much energy is being consumed, how much energy is being generated in a screen that's shareable by all of the students so that the community, the parents and the students were learning how the system is working on a day-by-day -day basis. Because of the peculiarity of time of use rates, they were able to finance this, all of the additional solar, all of the integration, all of the storage, all of the educational materials, at no cost upfront to the school district, and they are guaranteed the same price they are paying for electricity now for the next 20 years. Wow. They have uninterrupted power, on-site generation, same energy rates, Who guarantees years. it? The, the, I believe it's the company that provided yeah, the I, engineering services. I remember services. seeing this uh, presentation in Sacramento at your mm -hmm. event. I just mm -hmm. can't remember the person's name. Uh -huh. No, no, this is someone Eco, else. Eco Motion was yeah, yeah. The, the, the general service provider, the, the contractor who pulled all of mm -hmm. the constituent pieces together. They found the right storage company. They found the right uh, solar company. They found right. the, the, all of the integrating software. And they put it all together as a microgrid, as a mm -hmm. service wow. project. Yeah, it's a, it's a new trend. Wow. So a great example of what Michael So I'm finding this very rich. I want to ask if there are any folks who haven't commented or asked questions yet who have a question or something they'd like to ask, just to make sure we hear from everybody who would like to say something. Well, yeah. I do. I brought my friend. Excellent. My name is Patty Zerbe. I'm a friend of Peter Asmus, and I was always interested in the, in the whole microgrid theory because I see how well it works in other countries. And I recently got involved with a solar-powered electric tractor company, and I invited my friend over here, Jonah Wicke, to and come in. Yet, but I'm also with SelectVec. Great, great. Hi, oh, nice to see you. So, um, yeah, that's all I wanted to say. Thank you. James, you have a... I just have a question about this distribution thing. We put a solar system in Point Reyes about 18 years ago. And for a long time, we would get the $5 charge per bill, which was just a nominal thing. And then all of a sudden when we transferred over to the energy efficient company and going through that and what we're in, it turns out now we get distribution costs and all that kind of stuff and we're getting a regular bill. Now, do you see that pattern? Is that a pattern that's going on around the country? Is it just uh, PG&E that's doing that? Because we love the idea of not having a bill at all 
And then there seems to, everyone seems to be able to sneak little things in. So I'm just wondering what your, what your picture is. You know, I, it, it may be what you're talking about. Are you talking about um, what used to be called Marin Clean Energy, now yeah. MCE? Yeah. Well, what happened was before that, um, PG&E, you just got one bill from PG&E. Mm -hmm. Right. But uh, so when Marin Clean Energy came in, they just are charging for the supply and PG&E still charges you for the actual grid. So it's just sort of a disaggregated bill. Right. Um, so although, and there's a lot, it's, it's actually more complex than that. A lot of the utilities, because there's, I just heard today on my KWMR show today, I had a woman oh. from MCE and she said, that by 2025, over 75% of Californians will be getting their energy through what's called community choice aggregators like MCE. So it's really suddenly taking off. I mean, it was like Marin was the first one and was the only one for years and years and years, and now the whole Bay Area. But they're basically, you know, but the utilities, of course, don't like that. I don't know if you remember, they put a ballot proposition mm -hmm. to try to make it illegal and spent mm -hmm. $16 billion and it lost. But there, there's a fee, and I forgot what it's called. It's like a transition fee. The power Yes, there you go, the yes, power charge. Yes, So you guys, Walmart, so, and they've been trying to say that that should be bigger because it's a way to make CCAs less appealing, less economic. So it's, it's kind of a typical regular like chess game. You lose a little bit over here, someone then, you know, ask for a little more money over there. And the other thing that I'd just like to say is that with not being able to go over roads and stuff, if you put the system in anyways, and there's an emergency, and everyone has their extension cords, nobody's <laughs> going to go around and say you can't do that in an emergency. Right. So you just set the system up and just say, oh, yeah, we just leave it sitting there. We don't use it. And then everybody does when, when it's time I'm, to do it. I'm, do, I'm doing that exact thing. He's doing that. Yeah. He has a great so story. I, I live next door to a community center in Homestead Valley, and we've set it up with a big, giant extension cord so that if the yeah. power goes out, I can plug them into my house. With <laughs> a mask. No, no mask. Do it loud and proud. No, go ahead, Steve. <laughs> um, the, the electric tractor made me think of something. Is it possible that you could have a facility that would be solar powered or combination of however you want to run it with solar packs or with battery packs? And then when there's a power, yeah. people would have, they have to have the infrastructure in their house. They could go essentially rent the power pack and plug it into their home. And maybe run a refrigerator and a light or, you know, that, I that mean, was basically how the, big are these packs and is that doable? That was basically the business model of a company that no longer is with us called Better Place. And their idea was that rather than have electric vehicles that have a, a stationary power pack, battery pack inside, you would just drive to a charging station, the battery would drop out, a new battery would plug in, like your cordless DeWalt, and off you go. So absolutely, you could do that. I don't know if there's anybody doing that presently, but the idea exists. The, the, the reason that the, the tractor's taken so long, uh, Steve spent... 25 years and $3 million of his own money and about a million dollars in grants to get to a, something we could sell a month ago or a month and a half ago um, was because of the runtime issue because there's so much load on a tractor if you're running the PTO and you're towing something heavy. So the four-hour battery packs that he's patented um, are designed 
to allow for continuous operation. So our tractors could run 24-7 if you just had the battery packs swapping out. And that's the idea is mobile power sources that could be a community commons mm -hmm. that could do neighborhoods and all kinds of things. And you obviously you would scale it on the favorite loads. Right. Um, just uh, uh, absolutely so glad I drove down from Sebastopol for this conversation and seeing Ty for the first time in decades. And I, I, he, he wrote a, a poem called The Stage is Bare Now. Uh, which I published in my bachelor's dissertation, and I still read it to people because it's still true. Um, but uh, two things. One, as I, I have a technical question about microgrids, but I just wanted to mention to all of you, um, did any of you follow that about a year ago the legislature passed um, legislation uh, requiring that um, uh, non-carbon emitting uh, innovation be supported and uh, these these uh, carbon funds are supposed to be spent um, it's called it's called the carb farmer program and currently they're paying uh, for diesel tractors new diesel tractors to swap out old diesel tractors and um, just I don't know you know anybody in this room in this network but um, the legislation was to uh, provide 75% of the cost of a non-polluting vehicle. And we're at a year now, uh, the direction was very, very clear, and Steve has been to every meeting. Every meeting he goes to has 50 industry representatives and him. <laughs> That's it. And we are getting no progress whatsoever on uh, the CARB program being used for the purposes that the legislation was passed. So I'll just throw that out to anyone listening or any Thank of you. you for that. Uh, if you can help move the needle on that, um, it's, uh, it's really important. From a microgrid point of view, um, it seems like local electric vehicle, I, uh, I drive a Chevy Volt, um, which has about a 35 to 40 mile range, which is plenty for me when I'm not trying to commute somewhere. Um, it seems to me like linked with the microgrids, there's a huge opportunity for local there. transportation, um, utility vehicles like the Switch Lab is doing up in Sebastopol where you could also change the way people move around and my understanding is the cars could actually be used as part of your storage yes. based on regular yep. patterns and I haven't heard any mention of that but could you yeah. talk about because all the cars there's more and more yeah, no that, that is part of um, I mean a microgrid can have all kinds of resources including EVs now and there are some that already do and there's, there's one big project in Denmark called the Island of Bornholm that has had electric vehicles plugged into the microgrid and using those as resources. The main uh, concern, or I shouldn't say the one thing that uh, to start with, uh, what's most viable are fleets of EVs like at a, let's say a workplace, because you know the EVs are parked there during the day and then you can count on a certain amount of that resource, or at least theoretically. Right. Mm -hmm. The issue is what if, um, you know, your uh, the grid is, let's say you are a private homeowner and you've committed to some program where someone is actually tapping your battery to provide some service 
to not just the microgrid, but to the larger grid, mm-hmm. and you want to drive and you know pick up some milk or something, you know. Yeah. So right. that's more of a kind of more of a. But the vision is, and in California, our main challenge with climate change is transportation. Right. Our uh, resource mix of electricity is right. is cleaner than the rest of the country, generally speaking. Partly because of hydro, but also because of all the renew- other renewables that have come online. So EVs are definitely. Uh, part of of the mix. EVs being electronic Elect- vehicles. Electric vehicles. And I wanted to make one quick comment about the um, the battery packs is that's already being done in the developing world where there are companies, and we mentioned cell phone towers, so this is what ties it together, is, of course, the cell phone towers are actually being also leveraged to create microgrids because the cell phone towers come in, mm-hmm. they provide a certain amount of electricity. There are small companies, people on bikes come with batteries to the cell phone tower to charge up their battery packs and then go home. But now um, the Rockefeller Foundation has a program called ABC, which stands for Anchor, is the cell phone tower. That's the anchor to the microgrid. First expanding to small businesses, B, because they can do transaction and then expand to C, community. So there, But part of it is these sort of mobile power sources. So you can also have it in battery packs. <coughs> you can also have it with EVs. And so there is EVs being plugged. Uh, into microgrids. And one last comment, I guess, is one interesting thing. There was a microgrid law passed this year also Mm -hmm. that makes it easier to install microgrids. It's requiring... California or U.S.? California was a microgrid law. Mm -hmm. It uh, it supposedly uh, forces utilities to create programs that support microgrids. Mm -hmm. We'll see how that goes. And it also is supposed to ease the interconnection, which is one of the issues of what you have a microgrid. It takes a long time. The utility can say, oh, you have to do a study because this could be a threat to our grid. They could make the study expensive, so it makes the, and Darren probably knows more about this. But the other thing about California is um, we just invested $50 million in new microgrids. None of that money could go to fossil fuel which a lot of people didn't like. And originally the microgrid law also did that in that the last minute they made an exception for hospitals and also like fuel cells, which are clean, but they do burn fossil fuel, but they're basically, and so there was a little uh, tweaking there. But I just just want to add, they also just about a week ago extended the SGIP rebate. So that was approved. Self-generation. Yes, self-generation incentive program called SGIP to help pay for it. I want to make sure, has everybody who would like to ask a question or say something said something? I just want to check if there are any hidden voices. You've spoken already. I'm looking first. Anybody who hasn't spoken at all. Just want to make sure. Okay, Ty, you had a comment? There is one comment I have. It it just happens that my nephew is... uh, is operating a system for um, California, University of California. They're designing what they're calling eco-blocks. Oh, yes. Yes. Where you take a section of a residential section or a a mixed-use section of a city, Mm -hmm. you know, one block by one block, and you make it a microgrid, and you have it renew its own water, have uh, gray water systems and... You have set, uh, cars that are that are dedicated to that mm-hmm. uh, block, which are run by the solar. Right. So the whole thing is just looped up in, but it wouldn't have to be. I mean, it's completely contiguous with other neighborhoods. Yes. It's just like an eco-block thing, and they're mm-hmm. very excited about that in Europe. 
Okay. Because you're really realizing that they've got to transform. But it's zero energy. Got it. Thank it's, you. It's all net zero. So yeah. that, that's what's so cool about it. So last comment from you. Um, yeah. Um, we are going to go off grid. We live on the Mesa. We're going off grid. And I wanted to, one, know, is there a problem with PG&E, like if we say we don't want your service anymore? Is there any? Nope. No. Just not You're take? allowed to be off-grid. Okay. And the other would be if a household had a, um, a, a um, you know, totally off the grid, all the batteries, would that be a tiny uh, microgrid? Yes, exactly would be. Okay. Yes. All right. Thank you for that. So I'd like to give each of our speakers, starting with Darren, an opportunity for a last comment, uh, Darren, starting with you. Thank you. Uh, so there's one thing that we haven't spoken about here today that microgrids micro are capable of, which is a function called self-consumption. <clears throat> this is actually a really important part of them that makes them more valuable than just simply being a box of power which costs money and it's effectively an insurance policy. With self-consumption, what a battery system can do, the same microsystems can do, is take your solar <coughs> energy that you produce and store some of that and release some of that power at your control at times of day you use energy where the solar is not producing. Like in the evenings when you come home from work and you start using power. And that way you're storing your own solar production and you're using your own solar production at a different time of day. And by doing this, you can actually leverage use, leverage the solar energy that you're producing and get some value out of your microgrid systems. And it's not a phenomenal payback, but it's something, and it's a reason to help consider why invest in a microgrid, because it has a way to be paying for itself a little bit over time, at the same time that it is this a really important insurance policy to have a resiliency plan in place. You're listening to a TNS Conversation with Peter Asmus, Margaret Bruce, and Darren Malvin, hosted by Michael Lerner. So that's something to keep in mind. It's not just simply a box of, of fuel that you're going to use up. Okay, There's, It's a more interactive thing. And this is really what's changing right now and something that's very modern. I mean, this is there's only a couple of companies that are really able to do this. Tesla and Outback are both capable of this function. And uh, and. On a commercial level, that's really what batteries are about. They're not putting in microgrids so that they've got backup power unless it's a hospital. Other than that, commercial CNI projects are simply putting it in so that they can shift when they generate power to when they use their power. Because you're not necessarily generating it right when you're using it. So I just wanted to add that thank to you. everybody's consciousness. And, and I want to thank you, uh, Peter and, and Michael, for inviting me to be here. This is so great to be getting to be part of this little wave, and hopefully we can make it be a bigger wave. And, and you know, anything that we can thank be doing so here to much. help. And, thank uh, you, Darren. Thanks, Pardon. everybody. So I have kind of two pieces of this, and thank you for the great uh, segue. When I talk to local governments, those who are our members and those mm -hmm. we interact with, they look at microgrid, how to choose a microgrid based on two things, risk and cost. The risk is if my 911 call center goes down, what does that mean for my community? Or if my fire department doesn't get the emergency call, what does that mean? So how, how do we avert the risks that are absolutely unacceptable? That's more of a value proposition, not a cost proposition. So it's the cho choice of, look, we just have to do this. We absolutely have to do this. 
And then like the school district, there was an absolutely have to do this, but it was also a cost consideration. Oh my gosh, how much would we have to spend on generators? Oh, that's unacceptable. Let's do this instead. Oh, look how great this works. But local governments and special districts kind of have to weigh those two things. What's the risk? What's the cost? And as citizens of our own communities, I think we can help our leaders and help our fellow citizens identify what are those really important things that we need to do those things. So bring them into the awareness, the consciousness that you know we all share now, that these are important conversations to be had and important decisions to be made. And one last thing I wanted to illustrate was we live in a really privileged part of the world. And not everybody in California has the same privileges that I enjoy and that I'm assuming many of you do too. There was a microgrid project in Southern California that was funded in part by an energy commission grant, an EPIC grant. And a professor at UC Irvine and his great colleagues and esteemed professionals and technology providers came into this very disadvantaged community and said, we're going to do this great stuff for you. We're going to put solar on your houses and we're going to get like electric vehicle charging stations and we're going to just do all this really cool energy efficiency stuff. We're going to put double pane windows and it's going to be great for you guys, right? And the community was absolutely aghast. Mm -hmm. Get out was the response they had. Leave us alone. Get out. And they were dumbfounded. I was like, wait a minute, but you're going to save money and your house is going to be cleaner and you'll have less expensive transportation. And they just didn't get it. They're like, look, we live in the lowest rent corner of the lowest rent town in the valley because we are so poor. We're all economically disadvantaged. We, like, and what you're talking about may be great, but our, when we rent, our landlords are going to see the benefit from improved properties, improved values to their properties, which means they're going to raise our rent. Don't you dare. Where else are we going to go? We're at the bottom of the bottom of the bottom of the rung. Where else are we going to go? So stop it with your electric bullshit. And it was disheartening because the people who came in with that project really had the world's best intentions. They understood the cost of energy to this community. They understood the environmental health impacts to this community of their, their forced lifestyle. And they really wanted to make a difference. And I think the moral of the story is everybody needs energy resilience and everybody needs and deserves clean energy and everybody needs and deserves clean air. But there are sometimes confounding pressures, confounding situations where you have to address the underlying economic reality where people live and make sure that that part is honored and taken care of first. Thank and I would leave you with that thought. Peter, brief final comment. Well, I've talked so much, so I'll keep it brief. But uh, I, I guess uh, that last conversation triggered something when I, because um, my, my day job is covering the global microgrid market. In fact, I'm flying to San Diego after this to give a talk tomorrow uh, about um, global microgrids. But what, what uh, Margaret just said is more in the developing world, I've heard the same thing, is that 
One of the issues with technology providers, of course, you want to give these whiz-bang solutions, and you've got to think, it was, a Ty reckon there was an Office of Appropriate Technology under Jerry Brown. That was my first job, I think, coming to California. I had some little internship or something, and that notion of appropriate technology is Didn't really... Didn't you direct that office, Ty? <laughs> Me? Did you direct that office? No, I wasn't the director, no. Oh, okay. I was the, uh, I was the wind energy guy. The wind energy guy. But you remember that name. It was yeah, the right. concept oh, yeah. Yeah. of appropriate... Yeah, and I think that's something we have to keep in mind, and especially in the developing world. Like, I gave a talk in Alaska... And there was a guy from one of the big companies, I won't, well, I'll name, you know, the GEs, the Siemens of the world. And he was talking about tertiary controls and, you know, and all of this sort of stuff. And you could see the people in their flannel shirts looking at this guy going, this guy doesn't have a clue. We're living in these remote communities. There is no other grid. We cannot interact with the other grid. So I think, you know, that's one thing about microgrids is that, you know, we, we've drunk the Kool-Aid. We may think it's the best thing, it's the, you know, the answer, but there is still a level of what's appropriate, and you know, some people will want a simple system, some people won't want to necessarily sell extra energy to the grid. Uh, and then the last thing I'll say is, I am doing another event next week, if you hadn't had enough of this, um, at the Stinson Beach Community Center in the evening from seven to nine, and I'll highlight two other speakers that will be there uh, Thursday. 18. The 18th. There will be someone from the, the most famous microgrid in the region right now, probably is called Stone Edge Farm. It's got nine kinds of batteries. It's funded by a billionaire, but he's all into sustainability and it operated all 10 days through the fire, lost internet. So there was no internet communication. They had to force a new kind of control, a very basic control, and it worked. And they've created a product called an open source controller that is now available to anyone who wants a microgrid, open source. And then there's another company um, based in Fremont who's installed three microgrids at fire stations there and is now specializing in fire station microgrids called Gridscape Solutions. And so he will also be there. And they also offer financing. So there is, you know, there's a lot of vendors out there. Darren is also going to be at that event. And so if you want to learn more uh, about microgrids, I will have a few slides there at that one, but that's happening next Thursday. And why don't you plug your other event one more time? You bet. Um, October 25th, Santa Rosa, all day long, 8.30 to 5. We'll have um, speakers from the California Public Utilities Commission, the utilities local governments, emergency responders, um, to talk about how to do better communication in the event of an emergency, ahead of an emergency, and how do we plan for which critical facilities are to be selected for things like microgrids, and how do we put them together now, before the disaster happens. Where will it be? It's in Santa Rosa at the Veterans Hall. Right. So I want to thank Peter Asmus, uh, Margaret Bruce and Darren Malvin. Peter Asmus from Pathfinder Communications, Navigant Research. Darren Marvin from American Solar. And Margaret Bruce, Program Manager, Local Government Sustainable Energy Coalition for being with us. I want to leave you all with just a couple of other small thoughts. Um, I have been told, I do not know this firsthand, that the um, Nuclear power plants, which actually depend on the grid for their energy to run themselves, have diesel backups, 
And I think that the government requires that they have something like 10 days or two weeks of diesel. So just imagine for a moment that the grid goes down for more than two weeks. If that were to happen, these nuclear power plants have no way to keep their cooling systems and so forth going. going. And so as a matter of national security, one would think that it would be wise if nuclear power plants either invested in a cogeneration facility of some kind or some other form of sustainable energy so that they don't melt down. Um, so that's one friendly thought. Just what happened. <laughs> yeah. Look what happened in Japan. That's what happened in Jamaica. Yeah, yeah. All right. Fukushima. The other thing I want to say is at the end of just the easiest thing that people can do, um, one of our co Commonweal staff people up on Whidbey Island, uh, Nancy Hepp, uh, who's one of the most ecologically-minded people I've ever met. She rides a bicycle everywhere. She has a big garden. And um, so she invested for, I think it was like $30 on Amazon, a little solar thing that enables her to charge her cell phone. And you know what I like about that? It's the first step toward a microgrid. <laughs> it's like a $30 microgrid that if the, if the web goes down, I mean, if the, if the net goes down but the cell towers are still working, for $30, you can start your microgrid collection. And she said to me that she was thinking next, she would like to be able to power her computer as well. So I think there's a learning curve here. Uh, the other thing I want to mention is that our sound engineer, Ken Adams, who's done 300 of these conversations with me and others, uh, told me the other day that as a result of some of the conversations we've had, he's planning to get his ham radio license. Yeah. And so part of our intention uh, is that if we can have even a very modest solar ability, uh, connected to a, a, a battery and ham radio capacity, if communications go down as well as the grid, guess what? Ham radio is going to be the essential communications mm -hmm. network. Yeah. The final thing I want to mention is that uh, I had a wonderful conversation with Steve Marcotte today, who, uh, who's... Uh, wife Vanessa Marcotte is our chief financial officer, and I asked Steve if he would be willing to be the czar of emergency uh, planning at Commonweal, <laughs> and Steve, without a, a moment's hesitation, said, sure. And so uh, we're going to think about it, but czar of emergency planning is a great starting title for this extraordinary He's devoted many, many years to serving Northern California and far beyond as a professional fireman. And so we're deeply grateful and honored that you're going to join the family enterprise here at Commonweal. Thank you. Yeah. So again, I want to thank you all. And, you know, we're. We're building this sense. We don't have a name for it yet, but we're going to have a project at Commonweal that will have a name like the Commonweal Resilience and Emergency Planning Project or something. And uh, it parallels another project that we've been working on for a number of years in the funder community. 
uh, with the same issues, but this will be on the nonprofit side. And so uh, it will be a place at Commonweal where we will gather these forms of information and uh, lists of the challenges we face, like those on the FAN initiative, and just uh, build the concept of what authentic community resilience and emergency planning looks like. And you all are pioneers of this work, so we're very grateful for your many years of service. Thank you all. Thank you. You've been listening to a TNS Conversation with Peter Asmus, Margaret Bruce, and Darren Malvin. Thank you for listening to TNS, the new school at Commonweal. The new school at Commonweal is directed by Michael Lerner. Our program coordinator is Kara Epstein. Our audio producer is Ken Adams. And our theme music is by Suzanne Ciani. Visit us online at tns.commonweal.org. That's tns.commonweal.org. Commonweal is spelled C-O-M-M-O-N-W-E-A-L. You can also find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, Facebook, YouTube, and Vimeo. Thanks for listening.